Good morning. Uh, Bible reading today is 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 6-2. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in his preaching and teaching. For scriptures say, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the workers deserve his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder, unless it is bought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove them before everyone, so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and, inst and insist on. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Timothy over recent weeks, and um, we've been coming to understand God's design for the local church. In chapter 3, we read that when we gather together, when we gather together like this, we are the, the, the pillar and foundation of the truth in God's world. We're holding up and holding out God's truth to people who need to hear it. And we've seen that the way we hold out the truth is by proclaiming the gospel, the, the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and by living in a way that's consistent with that truth. That is how we show the, the watching world that God is the Savior who alone grants life. God cares how his church runs as an organization because it is his primary way to do his saving work in the world. But what happens when the church's reputation is damaged by the behavior of its members or by its leaders? This is, of course, something that every organization has to think about and deal with, and we see in this morning's reading that the church needs to be concerned about that as well, the reputation of the church. Just this week, I have been trying to find a replacement for my car, and I've had some help from Philip, actually, who came with me. My current car has had engine problems that are going to cost more to repair than it's worth as a, as a vehicle, so it's time to get something new. And as I scoured the used car ads and classifieds and eventually went out to test drive the car, I found that the whole process was really very draining because I've heard so many bad stories about people buying a used car that wasn't quite sold to them with full honesty. 
salesmen who've tried to cover up the problems or sneakily add extra fees on top, and, and, and those who generally cannot be trusted. And so I go into the process with this mindset of everybody's out to get me. Now, maybe that says more about my own state of mind than it does about the people who I was speaking to, but you see the problem. The whole industry is affected, and the mindset of people who go into it is changed by the bad reputation that they carry. A bad reputation can seriously damage an organization, and the church is no exception. Think about things like uh, financial dishonesty from a, a megachurch pastor. People hear about that. And, or think about institutional cover-ups of abuse or wrongdoing. Or think about um, you know, rumors in a local community that the, the pastor is spending too much time with some of the young women. Uh, those sorts of things really damage the work of the church and, and, and how effective we can be in what God has called us to be. They chip away at our reputation. And it makes it more difficult for the gospel to be heard. So it's out of concern for the reputation of the church that Paul, in 1 Timothy, gives guidelines for who we need to honor and how to honor those people. Last week we saw that the church is to honor widows who are widows indeed, those who are in genuine need. And as individual Christians, we are to care for the members of our own family who are in genuine need. And that, is, that was so that there would be no opportunity for slander, you remember. That's what Paul said. This week, we see that the church should honor those who preach and teach the gospel. And uh, Christian workers should honor their employers, their masters, for the same reason. In all these cases, Paul wants the church to have a good reputation so that the important message about Jesus Will not be hindered. So first of all, honor those who preach and teach the gospel to encourage the work of the church. Uh, you might remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the word overseer and how that is used in the New Testament in various places in parallel with elder and with pastor. And here we come to a section where Paul's talking about elders. So elders, bishops or overseers, and Pastors are all different titles for the same role, it seems, in the New Testament church. And it seems that this role was usually shared by multiple people within a church. So there would be a group of elders that helped oversee the life of the church and helped teach, shared the responsibility. Um, and Paul says in verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are... Uh, direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. Now, some think Paul was talking about two different classes of elders, the ruling elders that manage the, the life of the church and the teaching elders who, who do the, the teaching and preaching. Others argue that since Paul has already said in chapter 3 that all elders need to be able to teach, that he's actually just specifying uh, who he's talking about here. He's saying, in effect, um, those who manage the church, namely by preaching and teaching. Personally, I think it's the latter. So there's one kind of elder, and they, they manage the church by teaching and preaching. Um, 
But that's a side issue. That's not Paul's main point here. Paul's main point is clear enough. If elders direct and manage the life of the church well, especially by diligently laboring in preaching and teaching, they deserve double honor. The word honor used here is the same one used in uh, chapter 5, verse 3, for honor widows who are widows indeed, and that kind of honor meant support them financially. And then in, in chapter 6, verse 1, the same word, honor, is used for how slaves are to honor their masters, and that's, that obviously can't be slaves are to financially support their masters, it's they're to respect them. And so I think when Paul says the elders are worthy of double honor, what he's saying is that they're worthy of remuneration and respect. Paul quotes from two places in the scripture to make that point, that gospel work is real work that deserves real support. For the scriptures say, verse 18, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the, workers deserve, the worker deserves his wages. The quote about the ox from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, that is where um, God re God's law requires that the animals that are used in farming are, are not prevented from eating some of the harvest as they're, they're plowing the fields and gathering things in. And Paul's argument, which he uses again and explains again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is that if God commands that even oxen should benefit from the fruits of their labor, how much more should those who are involved in the, the work of the church benefit from the fruits of their labor? The second quote about the worker deserving his wages, it's actually a direct quote from Jesus. So Jesus says this quote in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. You'll remember that Luke accompanied Paul in his missionary journeys for some of uh, his journeys, and so it, it seems that uh, Paul is already quoting from Luke's gospel as authoritative scripture, um, or an early draft of it, in the early 60s AD. So if you ever have somebody come to you and claim that the gospels are written so much after uh, Jesus was alive and after he lived and died and was, was raised, and we can't really trust them because they were so far removed, that's rubbish, because Paul's already quoting the scriptures here within about 30 years of Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus uses uh, the word that would apply to farm laborers in just a, a normal working atmosphere, and he applies that to his disciples as they go out doing ministry, preaching and teaching. His point is that laboring for the church is real labor, and those who do it deserve to earn their living from their work. Now, what you and I need most is to know God better. I don't know what sorts of problems you're dealing with, what sorts of issues you face in life, but I know that you will be best able to deal with them if you know God better, because he will help you to make wise decisions whenever you have to make an important decision. He will give you uh, ethical guidance, because you'll know what he's like, and you'll know how you should live. He will help you to have peace and comfort when you're going through real difficulty. So what we need most is to know God better, and those who preach and teach are doing that to help us. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes study and preparation, we've heard. It takes much study. It takes diligence and skill. 
And our giving to this church, but Christian giving to every church, allows some people to be set aside to do that work of preparing and, and teaching as, as I'm doing now. But I, I wanted you to see that it's not just me that's doing that diligent work in our church. And it, it shouldn't ever be in any church just one person that's doing that, but it's a shared task. And we should be honoring those who are devoted to it. So thank you for uh, allowing me to be able to, to put the time and energy into preaching and teaching and, and know that I'm doing it for your benefit because this is how uh, God leads us and guides us through his word. But Paul tells the church it's not just remuneration, but it's also respect that those who teach and preach are um, worthy of because it is for our good. Why do the church committee and I meet regularly to review all kinds of paperwork and check church accounts and write reports and all that administrative stuff. It's because we want to direct the affairs of the church well for your benefit, for the benefit of the area that we live in so that the gospel can be proclaimed in an ongoing way here. Why do growth group leaders prepare their lessons every week and host social gatherings in their homes and meet with you in the week to pray with you. It's not because they don't have anything better to do. It's because they're convinced this is going to help you advance in faith and help you grow as a Christian. Why do Sunday school teachers faithfully prepare these creative lessons and, and turn up every week ready to, to teach? However many children turn up, you never quite know how many are going to be there. But, but they do it every week faithfully because they believe that the gospel is going to be important, eternally important, for the children that they teach. And fundamentally, I think Paul's calling the church to do what we can to encourage those who are in that sort of ministry. We should be speaking well of them, both publicly to other people and privately. We should... Be eager to learn from them. We should come ready to, to hear and encourage. And um, we, we might bring others along and say, you know, uh, you can really find some help here as the Bible is taught. Not because the people that do the teaching are some special class of person, but because they have devoted themselves to, to understanding so that they can teach. And that's all I claim for myself. I, I've been able to put time in so that I can teach the truths that we need most. Catherine and I were able to attend the Symphony Under the Stars last night. I don't know if anybody else was there, but it, it was a lot of fun. Um, and we enjoyed it very much. And one of the things that they did before every piece of music that they played was they introduced and, and they celebrated the key soloist for that part. So uh, show your appreciation for the award-winning violinist, and everybody would clap, and the person would bow, and, or, or for the pianist, and they would do the same. And, and you know, I'm not very cultured when it comes to classical music. I don't really know anything about it, but that helped me to know where my focus should be and to pay attention to which parts of, of the, the orchestra in that piece. And 
I don't think that we should uh, applaud Christian teachers or, or preachers. We did it, but I, I don't think that we should necessarily make a habit of that. I don't think that we should uh, put them on stage and, and let them bow and, and perform for us, because that's not what we're about. And yet there was something to the idea of uh, people giving due respect to the person who's labored to bring this beautiful piece of music. Right? It, it, it helped me to understand what was important about this piece, where my attention should be. And so when we honor those who preach and teach the gospel, we're helping people to hear the gospel message, I think. So eagerly support Sunday school teachers. Give words of encouragement to your growth group leaders. Thank the church committee members and let others know that they're doing a good job. That's all. Because they want to see you flourish in faith. That's the first major point of this section. Secondly, be cautious in disciplining leaders to preserve the reputation of the church. Paul turns to how the church ought to approach those who are accused of wrongdoing. And again, he draws from Old Testament law. That's his repository of wisdom. Deuteronomy 19 is where he draws from. And he says, he uses this established principle of law. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Now, that was part of Israel's legal code. Any thing that needed to be established in court needed to have two or three witnesses affirming it for it to be considered proven in, in the court. That might be somebody who had witnessed it personally themselves, or it might be a, a, an expert or a judge who had examined the, the person giving testimony, examined the evidence, and said, yeah, I think this probably did happen. And um, Paul is saying that part of honoring an elder means at least meeting that same standard for accusations against them. Those who do Christian ministry are particularly vulnerable to gossip, to rumors, and to scandal. There are people who are primed and ready to misconstrue every word and every behavior because they don't like the message. And many find the idea of Christian leaders being hypocrites, inherently plausible and delicious. They, they love that. But Paul says, while we, we should and, and we must take accusations of sin against a, a leader seriously, we must take them seriously, but they should not be accepted as true until a thorough investigation has been conducted. And if an elder has done wrong, then those elders who are sinning um, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. I know a pastor who has recently taken over in um, a, a church here in, in Hong Kong, and as the head pastor, he's been appointed, and he had only been there a few months when it was discovered that one of the other pastoral staff members was stealing from the church accounts. And so he brought that evidence that he had gathered to his board of um, people that he that worked with to uh, oversee the church, and they investigated. And 
When it was confirmed, they fired this staff member and they made a public announcement in the church that this is what happened, this is why we did this, and so if you have any questions, come to us because we've done the investigation. And though that kind of thing should never happen in a church, and we, we pray it will never happen in ours or any other church, um, when it was dealt with rightly, it became a great opportunity. It became a great opportunity because they've shown that the church takes sin seriously and nobody is above what uh, God has said in the scriptures and what is the expected standard of behavior. They've taught other staff members in the church uh, to take warning lest they come under the same sort of public exposure. And they've shown that no matter who a person is, they're accountable to the church and to God, that no partiality, no favoritism happens. And, and that is how we ought to uh, likewise lead in the church. Thirdly, we should be patient in appointing leaders. Now, God can use even those bad situations for good, and I'm sure that he will use it for good in that, that other church, but uh, we shouldn't let them happen in the first place if we can help it. And one of the best ways to prevent those sorts of things from happening is being patient in who we're appointing to leadership positions. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. When Timothy himself was appointed as an overseer, elders laid their hands on him appointed him to the position that he was in. It was a kind of ordination service. But it seems to me that the same sort of caution should be shown for any sort of Christian leadership, and more caution the higher the, the authority or the, the greater the responsibility. It's often the case in church life, I think, and particularly the case in a small church like ours, that we are frequently scrambling to cover all the things that we need to do as a church, all the things that we, we would like to do. So somebody needs to teach Sunday school. Somebody needs to be a committee member. Somebody needs to lead a growth group. And, and when that's the case, it's very tempting to just grab whoever's nearby and say, it, this is your responsibility. You do this. But while that can solve or seem to solve a short-term problem of filling a gap, that creates, it stores up long-term problems for the church. Think of the reputational damage that happens when a church leader is caught in wrongdoing. It becomes a scandal inside the church and often will lead people to leave and maybe even leave the faith. And it can become a scandal outside the church. And so people whisper about um, what's going on in that, that place uh, from outside. And those who hastily appointed that person kind of share in some of the blame far better to have patience, giving time for due process and evaluation before appointing somebody. It gives time for problems and behavior to emerge. Uh, and it, I think the more important point is that it shows confidence in God that if he wants a ministry to be run, he will present the qualified people to do it. And if he doesn't present the qualified people to do it, then he doesn't much mind whether it's run or not. We should have that sort of confidence as a church to say we're not just going to fill every spot for the sake of filling it. We're going to trust God to present the people who can do it. And verse 25 says it gives time for those who are qualified to lead to be noticed, 
to be encouraged and to step into those roles if we're patient. Lastly, diligent workers. Paul comes to his instruction for slaves to honor their masters in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I think it's really important for us to see that Paul is not affirming the institution of slavery uh, as a whole. The logic of Christianity is uh, a logic that undermines the idea of slavery because it puts masters and slaves on the same level. They're both um, they're brothers and sisters in the church. And in fact, over time, Christianity is what led to the abolition of slavery around the world. Paul's, letter played a, uh, Paul's letters played a massive part in making that happen over the course of history. But that isn't Paul's focus here. He's not trying to overturn slavery here. Paul is being very practical, and he knows that slavery is part of society. It's part of the reality of life in the Roman Empire. Uh, depending on the part of the empire you're talking about, scholars estimate that there were 10 to 30% of the population were slaves at that time. And Paul's concern is that slaves should work in a way that will not damage the reputation of the church. And I think that what he says to slaves should apply to all of us who work for employers or clients or, or others. Christian workers must honor their non-Christian employers, working hard for them so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. It would not reflect well on the church. It would not encourage people to embrace the gospel if Christian employees were known to be slackers, to cut corners, to speak badly about their bosses behind their backs. Instead, they should be known as good workers, the sorts that you would want and hope that all your workers were. Likewise, it would be wrong if Christian bosses got more respect and more hard work from their pagan employees than they do from their Christian ones. I met a Christian manager in that position a few weeks ago when I was out uh, speaking for another church. They said to me, you know, sometimes I get my Christian employees making excuses about why they, they can't do this or that, and uh, they take it for granted that, you know, I'm a Christian, I'll understand. But actually, that ought not to be the way we are. We should be known in our workplaces as Christians, and we should work in a way that will give a good reputation to God and church so that others will be encouraged to give the gospel a hearing. That doesn't mean necessarily taking on board the work culture of our city, but it does mean just being um, careful to, to work diligently. So all of that might seem inwardly focused. And yet I think if we understand the place of the church in our world, we see that we're meant to be a pillar and a foundation of the truth in Saikang, in Hong Kong. And God has chosen us to get the gospel out. And so it really, really matters what we do as a church. What an honor it is. What a privilege we have that God has put us in this position to be able to, to share the gospel. And therefore, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us for the task. And we must do all that we can to promote the saving work and prevent 
anything from undermining it. Let's pray. Father, we see the high calling that you've given to us as a church. We, we know that um, very often we, we haven't guarded the reputation, uh, your reputation, the reputation of your name, or the reputation of your church very well. So I pray that in the way that we live as individuals, in the way that we organize our common life together as a church, and uh, that you would help us to manage everything well so that the gospel can go out, that people can be saved, and that your kingdom will be expanded. Lord, we know that's your work. We want to join with you in it. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.